0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first podcast episode of my new podcast entitled Fretless Thoughts. Now, this podcast is going to be a free-form podcast, and really, uh, I just want it to be a place where anyone could come with any opinion, any background, and pretty much say whatever they would like to say. No judgments here, just uh, we just want to get your point, get your point of view, and see if we can... Uh, Look at the subject or uh, the topic uh, a little differently than uh, we had before. So, with that introduction being said, I'd like to welcome you to our first podcast. And this first podcast is going to be um, a little bit about myself, yours truly. And, um, you know, just to give you a quick background, uh, my name is James Edward Espinosa, I was born here in Southern California. I'm a musician, musician by trait um and uh I'm just a regular dude who uh is trying to navigate his way through this world just like anyone else um now uh today we're coming uh coming to you from pretty uh, peculiar times. We're in the middle of this uh worldwide pandemic. And to be honest, I don't think any, anybody really knows what the future holds as far as uh, returning back to some sense of normalcy. But, um, you know, only time will tell. And uh, just hope and uh, pray that things get back to normal as soon as possible because a lot of people are out of work. A lot of people are bored at home. A lot of people actually have to spend entire days with their families. Which, yes, I know could be frightening. <laughs> but not if uh, you're a lucky dude who has a, a, a good family. Um, but, yeah, you know, it, it's a very uncertain times. Uh, shit's crazy. Um, things, are, things are really weird, you know. I just always imagine for the, the dude that's just getting out of jail or just waking up from a coma, thinking, what the hell is going on? <laughs> Why is everyone in masks? You know, what is going on? So yeah, it's very, very, uh, very strange times, but, uh, I have a feeling that we will prevail, someone, some smart student, somebody working in a lab, maybe even my cousin, who just graduated from MIT, is working on, uh, cures for cancer and other infections, someone's gonna find a cure for this thing, and, uh, we'll get this, uh, whole America, American economy and really worlds, uh, back spinning in the right place, and, uh, Operating on the same uh frequencies that we used to, but until then got a lot of free time on our hands and um you know we' we'll just see what people do with it. There's a lot of creative minds that work right now, a lot of cool stuff going on on the interweb the internet people coming up with some fire memes first of all, just amazing, and uh just some really cool content so um I' applaud you if you're one of these people, kind of uh taking this time to be creative and uh, to have some fun and uh, maybe even make some money. So uh, all the power to you. So uh, that being said, I just want to get on with today's episode and really it's just going to kind of a short bio and introduction to myself and um, what I've been through in my short 32 years on this earth. Um, I've actually been through a lot. And uh, I just want to share some of these things with you, a little bit of my story to maybe inspire or to uh, shed light on uh, where I come from and what kind of things I've seen and been through. So with that being said, here we go. Uh, My name is James Edward Espinosa. I was born on October 21st, 1987. Southern California, to my mother and father, um, art and Nora, and um, yeah, I came into this world with two older brothers, Christopher and Arthur, who turned out to be uh, really cool cool dudes and uh, yeah, growing up growing up was uh, was a lot of fun and when I look back into my memory, um, I have very, very fond memories of me playing baseball as a child and rollerblading in the street, and playing with my brothers, and spending time with my family. And uh, to be honest, uh, I can honestly say that I had a great childhood, a good upbringing. Um, you know, the very, uh, very uh, loving household that I grew up in. And uh, like I said, you know, I played sports, baseball, and uh, I spent a lot of time with my family, which was great. Now, uh, if we could fast forward uh, the clock a little bit. Um, you know, Around the time that I uh, probably entered middle school, of course, you know, it's a you know, time of great change for a young man, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old, a lot of changes are happening physically. And uh, you're just starting to come into your own and find out who you are as a person. And for me, that whole process would be extremely, extremely difficult as I found out a lot about myself. Um, and the first thing I found out uh, was when I was about 12 years old. Um, I noticed a very, very, very big change in my, my mental state. Um, I just wasn't happy. Um, I wasn't enjoying any of the activities that I normally do, such as playing baseball, or skateboarding with friends, or just hanging out, or being around people in general. Um, Things became very dark for me. And before I even knew what it was, um, I became violently uh, depressed. And it was uh, very difficult to deal with depression, especially when you don't know what it is. And I remember vividly trying to explain what anxiety felt like to someone when I didn't even know what it was. I didn't know what anxiety was. All I know is I had a physical feeling in the pit of my stomach that would not go away, and it it, it was horrible. So, um, you know, like a lot of people who have loving and caring parents, my parents noticed. They were concerned. And they did pretty much what the majority of what most parents would do, and they went to went out and they they sought professional help and At the time, uh, I had a Kaiser Permanente as my health care provider, and uh yeah, we went from there, uh, my mom made an appointment with the doctor. I was seen by two different therapists, psychologists. And at the time, at 12 years old, I was given the diagnosis of major depression. Now, when you say that, it's a fairly easy concept to wrap your mind around. Depression, you know? You're sad. You're not enjoying things. All of these symptoms that we may or may not be familiar with, if we've experienced it ourselves firsthand, are through someone who we love or care about. It could be pretty, pretty... uh, Pretty traumatic, and uh, I was dealing with a lot, especially coming from a place where I didn't know much about my diagnosis or what my options were. So, right off the bat, boom, medication. Now, the first medication that I was put on, it's kind of like the one that they put everyone on first, and that was Prozac. Now, I took Prozac, and right away, I started to experience side effects. Um, notable one that I can remember quite vividly is just constant headaches. Man, I was having a headache literally all day because of this med, these meds. And, uh, you know, just after a while, just, it just wasn't even worth it. And uh, I remember being at the kitchen table and my mom was looking at me and she just asked me like, Hey, is this even working for you? I looked at her and I I told her, no, no, this isn't me do something. So we went back and uh, we told him our concerns and my complaint and how the the medicine I felt was causing my headaches. And the doctor kind of agreed, okay, this is not working. And I thought, all right, well, you know, that that was fair. You know, we gave it a shot and, you know, try something different or, you know, whatever. Well, it was on to the next one. And this became a pattern, and the next medicine, I believe, was Wellbutrin, and I took that, and that one, I stayed on that one for a while, and uh, I had no idea that this was going to be the beginning of uh, mini-meds, and, um, you know, as the, as the time went on and things passed, um, you know, I, I began to kind of live and deal with my depression, and to be honest, I hated it. Um, I hated every moment of it. I remember going on a small family vacation in San Diego. And just in beautiful San Diego. Summertime, just gorgeous weather. With all my brothers. And, um, you know, I'm just completely miserable. And it's just feeling, this feeling that, you know, if you've ever been depressed, then this is nothing new. But for those who haven't experienced depression, the only... You know, the only the only words I can really even choose to describe it is just the in- inability to experience joy. Um, it's horrible, you know, it is horrible. You're always looking down, always looking in an eternal, just just it, it literally is a living hell, and it's it's no way to live your life, and it's uh it's it's to be honest it's just a very very shitty existence it's it's very very overwhelming and uh you know it just became one of those things that uh i had to deal with now you know so as uh you know as i as i grew older you know i i i came to come to terms with my depression as you know i go through these phases where i get really sad and when i knew that i was going into one It sucked, you know, and all I could do, to be honest, is just bite the bullet and see how long this depression ride would last. And some of those rides were lasted way too long. And, um, you know, the science behind depression, you know, it's a chemical imbalance, you know, your brain is not producing enough serotonin, or your brain is not producing enough of this or that, things aren't firing right, and... All these things are supposed to be fixed by medicine, modern medicine. But to be honest, psychiatry is pretty much a guessing game. And I would come to find that out a lot more as I got older. But uh, yeah, so uh, I was dealing with the depression and um, it was hard. But, you know, there were spots and, and moments where, you know, things were okay. And I wasn't always depressed. You know, like I said, it would come in phases, you know, some phases... Last a month. You know, a month of depression. Okay. Some would last the whole summer. Alright, three three, three months of depression and so on, you know. and am going to go on like this for a couple of years. And I couldn't tell you that at the time that I received my next diagnosis, what medication I was on. That would be very helpful. Um, but I was on meds for sure. When... I started to act a little erratic. Now, for some about 13 at the time, for a 13-year-old, some of this behavior is kind of par for the course of being uh, going through puberty and uh, kind of uh, being in a hypersexual state all the time, like most teenagers or a lot of teenagers are. You know, some of it seems a little out there, but might be considered normal. You know, things like watching porn and, you know, uh, masturbating. (laughs) Um, Perhaps maybe doing that a little too often. And, um, you know, uh, besides that, the hypersexuality, there's also a lot of weird behavior that I would exhibit. Uh, For instance, one day out of nowhere, I just decided to shave my legs. And I shaved my legs. And I don't know why. I just did it. And, I mean, right away, it was noticed. Obviously, it was not too smart, and I used my brother's razor. So he noticed right away, dude, what the fuck? <laughs> and then my parents see all the cuts on my legs, because I obviously didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And they're concerned. Why are you shaving your legs? First thing my dad asked me is, what are you, are you gay now? Like, you you gay? You shave your legs? And So I would hear that. And uh, besides leg shaving and hypersexuality, there was just other, a lot of, like, really irrational thinking going on in my brain. You know, I would, uh... I would steal things a lot. It got to the point where I was stealing things I really shouldn't be, like the keys to my parents' car, and going out for joy rides at 3 in the morning, picking up friends, and... You know, just doing all kinds of outlandish stuff that I really had no business doing. Now, uh... When all this behavior started to culminate, uh, my parents were concerned, of course, and my mom did what she does, which is really her only line of defense at this point, was take me back to the doctor. So, in her car, and down the road we march and head down to the doctor's office. See this... This... uh, Psychologist, and um, that's when I would receive my next diagnosis, and one that would stay. and would be, would, would be one of my last diagnoses, which means that it was an accurate diagnosis. But um, after speaking with the doctor, and after she consulted my mother privately for a while, where I can imagine my mom pretty much told her everything from the constant masturbating to... Me stealing cars, shaving legs, staying up all night, acting out of sorts. Um, The doctor came back with the diagnosis of manic depression or bipolar disorder. Now, at the time, this is around, I'm going to say, the year 2000. And, you know, manic depression was sort of an outdated term, but... The first one that I ever remember hearing was bipolar. You're bipolar. James, you're bipolar. We know what's wrong with you. Eureka, we found your illness. You're not just fucking weird. You're bipolar. Like, there's a reason for these these restless thoughts and this irrational thinking. So, in a sense, I guess I was relieved, sort of, but also kind of afraid. Because upon hearing this, okay, I'm bipolar, so there's got to be a pill for that, right? Like, what do I do? What do I do to fix this, you know? Even I couldn't stand myself. I couldn't stand the way I was acting. But it was almost like it was out of my control. And uh, I remember asking, okay, so what do we do? What's, What's the deal? And the first thing I was told was kind of like a deal breaker. There's no cure for bipolar disorder. There's no cure. You're going to have this for the rest of your life, whether you like it or not. And for anyone who's bipolar, that's something that hits really hard at home because nothing could be closer to the truth. Yeah. I am still bipolar, and I still have this. Um, And there is no cure. And I've I've tried pretty much everything. And... um, I still got it. So um, they were right about that part. There's no cure. And uh, so at that time, I was really kind of, really perplexed and very confused. I mean, if there's no cure, then why the fuck am I taking all these pills? What are they doing? You know? And not to mention, with the new diagnosis, became a whole new regimen. and switch, new meds, new everything. You know, it was just boom. Okay, now you're on lithium. Now you're on, you know... All these just crazy pills you never heard of. And just, you know, more therapy and more doctors. And all this was really starting to take its toll on me physically. You know, um, just making it to all my doctor's appointments required that I miss a lot of school. Which was, you know, not really the greatest thing for me at the time. And then also... You know, like, what's the point? Like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, why are we... Sh- why, you know? I, I I, vividly remember, like, why? Why am I even taking these pills? Like, there's no cure. You said it. So what's the point? And, uh, you know, I was explained countless times over and over. You know, you take these pills for maintenance. You know, the lithium is a mood stabilizer. It's supposed to help balance out all your moods so you're not shaving your legs and stealing cars and... Bouncing off the walls and having mood swings. So I understood that. And I was partial to the lithium. Because it was the most natural medicine that I would be prescribed. Lithium, if you're not familiar, yes, it is a battery. And you hear it on all kinds of commercials. Lithium ion. But it's also a salt. A natural occurrence salt. That has healing properties and has been used for a very long time uh, uh, in for mental health uh, purposes. And um, and also a fun fact. You'll see a lot on um, conspiracy theories or whatever. Lithium, I guess, at one point was even put into Sprite. As an ingredient. Um, and yeah. You know, there's all kinds of weird conspiracies that we could attribute lithium to. But um, it's probably the most effective medicine when it comes to bipolar disorder. manic depression. And pretty much everyone's prescribed it. So... Yeah, so I was on lithium and then just a bunch of other antipsychotics and mood stabilizers and antidepressants and all sorts of things for the next, you know, almost 20 years um, trying to deal with this. Now, um, you know, all this is happening while being a teenager. So there's lots of things to miss out on. And I did, you know, I I didn't... Um, you know, I, 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 I did miss out on a lot of things. And a lot of that was due to the depression, you know, just not being able to enjoy yourself or your friends or life, anything in general. So, uh, yeah, my uh, my teenage years were a struggle for sure. I, I struggled to get through them, but I uh, had my good times and my bad times. And, you know, at, at periods of times where I would, go a whole year or maybe even two without any episodes of depression or mania, just pretty normal, you know, and uh, I uh, I would always kind of uh, think that, hey, maybe if I get normal and I could stop taking these meds and then I'm not bipolar anymore, I'm just a dude. But that was just a fantasy and uh, I would come to find that out the hard way uh, many times. So, um, you know, over the Next few years, um, I had exhibited some strange behavior, been to my first mental hospital probably at the age of 14 or 15, probably about 14, and that was very, very traumatic for me. Um, they don't do this anymore, but at the time when you got out of line in a, a mental hospital and I was a youth. They couldn't just drug you up like they can and shoot you with the whole vial full of halidol or or whatever they 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 might shoot you up with now. Um, they put me in a straitjacket. jacket, and uh, that still gives me chills to this day. It was horrible. They put me in a straitjacket jacket and threw me in a padded room for about an hour, it seemed like two or three. It was probably about an hour, and uh, yeah, it was horrible. So uh, I came out of that first mental hospital stay very jaded, very upset, and really just mad at everything, mad at the world, mad at my parents. How could my parents do this to me, put me in this mental hospital? How could society do this? How could God do this to me? Oh, God. You know, all these insane thoughts. Um And pretty much blaming everybody, but the fact that, hey, this is just part of your... Something that you inherited. Come to find out that mental illness is hereditary. And, you know, come to find out that depression does run in my family. You know, I've had uncles commit suicide. I've had, you know, alcoholism and addiction run in the family. And, you know... I think that if people were a little bit more honest, I wouldn't feel so bad about my mental health at this point in my life. But, you know, I was learning a lot and also um, really isolating myself from the world, Um, especially in times of depression. It was tough. But, um, you know, I got through that. I got over it. got over that horrific hospital stay. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, I try to be normal, try to live normal teenage life, I skateboard, play baseball, chase girls, and all the things that a, a normal teenage boy should be doing. Um, but yeah, things were tough. Things, things were definitely tough. And uh, the, the thing that I regret probably the most is what, how I reacted when I was younger. Um, I realized after a few years of being medicated and seeing therapists and seeing psychiatrists to know the words not to say and essentially it just got to a point where I just tell them what they want to hear and I knew that if I said this isn't working or I feel like this and blah 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 they would change my meds well my whole goal was to be off meds and to be on as little meds as possible so Even when I was depressed, I'd go in there and I'd lie. I'd just say I feel great, things are good, blah, blah, blah. Just so no new meds would come into the mix. And, uh, you know, it kind of worked for a while. Um, But then every now and then I I would go off. And, you know, I knew how to deal with my depression. And it wasn't pretty, but I dealt with it. I accepted it, I embraced it, I rode out the storm, and then I moved on, but... The new symptom that was new to me was the mania. Now, um, a lot of people have heard of bipolar mania. Uh, They might have seen movies like Silver Lightning Playbooks or shows like Homeland or anyone that really depicts a bipolar uh, person in the midst of mania, but mania, in short, I would describe it as just a loss of control. And um, it's very scary because for the person who is experiencing the mania, it feels good. To be honest, um, and I'll be honest with you, it feels amazing. Um, and how good it feels, it's really indescribable. But I could honestly say that as someone who has experimented with many substances, hallucinogenic, um, pr- pretty much tried almost any drug you could think of, um, mania feels better than all that combined. Um, it feels like you are made out of cocaine. <laughs> it feels like you are cocaine. You, you actually, essentially, you feel like a superhero. And it's scary because you believe that you have superhero powers. And that's where you see people doing irrational things in the midst of their mania. Maybe Kanye West was experienced a, a manic episode when he decided to run for president. I mean, he's great. And I love you, Kanye. And you make great music. But uh, I'm not voting for you, bro. Like, come on. Get it together, you know. And. You know, being manic will, will make you do things like that. You know, make you think you could be the president or make you think that, you know, you're the best in the world at what you do or whatever. And it's very scary. And the reason why people get hurt or why mania is so dangerous is because you do feel that feeling of invincibility. And I could tell you right now, that I've done some insane shit that I would never, ever even think about doing if I was sober or in the right state of mind. But that mania, man, that's it. It's like a drug. So, um when I would experience this mania, it was very noticeable. Couldn't hide it. Up all night, doing crazy shit, scaring the fuck out of everybody. And um yeah, got bad. So uh, you know, repeat this process over and over and over. And after a while, you know, Boom. Go manic. Right away, go to, the, go to the mental hospital. And after about, you know, fast forward the clock now, you know, I'm in my 20s. And after, let's say, about 10 years of dealing with it, I kind of understood how the game works, you know. If I feel manic, I kind of had to stop what I'm doing, you know. And luckily, at the time, at this time, I was working for my parents, so they were very um, understanding in dealing with my mental health and work. So if they noticed, they even noticed that I was going a little off or being a little manic, I mean, they would just give me two weeks off. They let me take some time off, be at home, chill out. And essentially, they'd just deal with me, you know. <laughs> they'd have to deal with me staying up all night, you know, eating at insane hours of the day and dealing with my side effects and... Just everything that comes along with being in a manic state, and it was tough. But I give all the the props and uh, credit to my family, my mother and father and brothers who had to deal with me. It was it was um, frightening at times. Put it that way. Um, and yeah, you know, it was uh, it was it was it was insane. You know, to be honest, it was it was growing up my. my I caused a lot of chaos around my household and my family. And I'm very sorry for that. But I know that my parents and my brothers understand. And, um, yeah, it's uh, I'm just very lucky to have a family like I do. So, that being said, um, you know, going through life, I'm working, you know, going through it. And, um, you know, there's a few times where I go a little off and, uh, you know, go a little crazy for a couple days, but I come back to baseline, what they call, a, you know, kind of like balanced state. And uh, at this time, for, and for a long time, I prescribed two meds. It was just lithium, the mood stabilizer, the very popular one, made out of salt, and a medicine called Seroquel. Now, Seroquel is an antipsychotic. But anyone who's taking it or taking it that's that's night night that's nighttime that's pretty much bedtime pills. so once you take this pill Seroquel, you're gonna go straight to sleep. It shouldn't knock you out. I had a couple other side effects as well. It almost kind of made you stoned like you're high um, and sometimes it makes you extremely hungry but It's a bad combination because you're very tired and hungry. So go into the kitchen half awake and just eat anything. Anything. I mean, I, I, I remember my brother telling me one time, dude, I saw you eat cookie dough and put it on bread and just eat it. You know, just weird shit. Because you're just fucking hungry. You're just like, fuck, I just need something in my stomach. And that's how Circle made me feel. But I got used to it. And most of the time, I'll take it late enough after I ate where I wouldn't feel hungry, I would just feel the tired part. But, I liked this medication. The reason why I liked it is because I had trouble sleeping. Very hard time sleeping. In fact, I should have been diagnosed, and have been since, but should have been diagnosed as an insomniac. Because I just couldn't sleep, dude. Especially when I was manic, there's no way. But even when I was depressed sometimes, I would just literally worry all night about the dumbest shit. And I just wouldn't sleep. Stay up all night worrying about stupid shit. Um, so, um, yeah, lithium and Seroquel for a while, and then as I got older, you know, start to make some money, you know, I branch out and kind of become my own person, and uh, I met a girl, and it turns out that she was bipolar as well, but she didn't tell me that, and I was kind of filling up in a manic, not completely manic, but kind of getting there, what you might call a hypomanic state. And um, you know, we just decided to casually just move to San Francisco, and we did. <laughs> we had no job, no money. I had a truck, I had a vehicle, so we just put all our shit in the back of my truck, and we just drove to San Francisco. And it was pretty insane. But this trip in the Bay Area would kind of change my life. Um, so we went up there, and I mean, right away, things start to fall apart between me and her very quickly. We get annoyed at each other, can't stand each other, and things are just falling apart. But, I mean, on all flames, I mean, we're there, we're living out of my truck, sleeping in parking lots and doing all kinds of crazy shit, and um, randomly, I just broke my toe really badly, you know, just was wearing dress shoes, I came down on it wrong, and in San Francisco, and I just, I broke it really bad, and I was driving stick, and I had to drive, you know, and I had to work, and I was just thinking, like, I can't be in a cast, or I can't, you know, (laughs) be on crutches, so I just fucking iced it, and called it a day, and that would be a decision that would come back to haunt me years later, while I would require surgery to fix this foot, but at the time, it seemed like the right thing to do, so... I sit and continue to look for work and trying to make it out in the Bay Area, which is by far one of the most expensive cities you could live in in America. So smart choice. Another smart choice. But uh, eventually things started to work out. The girl I went up there with, she found a job. Um, And eventually, you know, like uh, I would find work doing anything I could. I, I worked in a grow house, an illegal marijuana grow up where I trimmed all day. It was good money, dude. I make like 200 bucks a day. It was pretty sweet. Um, But eventually, she got tired of it, and things fell apart between us, and we broke up. Now, she had a job, and she she found a place in Oakland to stay, and it was all right. I didn't feel so bad about, you know, just kind of, all right, well, you got to get out of my truck, and you can't stay with me anymore. So, we went our separate ways, and, uh, you know... I try to do my thing up in the Bay. Now, uh, my dad, of course, was always looking out for me, and uh, he had some connects up in the Bay Area. So pretty soon, um, I get a phone call from my dad and say, hey, I know this guy. He works for so-and-so company, telecom company, doing construction that I was familiar with. And long story short, boom, get connected with this guy and go to work right away doing freelance work. And it was amazing because basically what I was doing are these small upgrades on these cell sites, which was 3G at the time. And for each cell site that I would do, it was $300 cash in my pocket. So I would do two to three sites a day. I was making good money. and It was a lot of fun. And that first month, I must have made, I don't even know, close to five or six thousand dollars. It was it was awesome. Um so eventually that ran out, that freelance work in. I was asked to join that company and work for them full time. They started me off on a great salary and I was happy dude. Um so yeah, um you know things randomly kinda worked out I guess besides the broken foot and all the things that me and the ex went through. Um, Things were kind of working out so eventually I found a spot in Berkeley, found some roommates and I just worked you know and it was cool, things were cool and at that time my crutch that really became a huge part of my life and my antidepressant and in some ways my best friend and only friend was marijuana and there was abundance, no shortage of it up in the Bay Area. Now this is around 2010. Um, where marijuana was still technically illegal, but if you had a, a card, doctor's recommendation, it was legal, but you know, whatever. So I was smoking every day, all day, even at work and even the guys I worked with we were smoking and we're doing, we weren't doing your basic, you know, swinging a hammer type shit. I mean, we were climbing. I was climbing towers high. I was working at Stanford and Palo Alto doing the upgrade on their network. We were all high. And uh, it, was, it was great. I loved it, man. Like, I was like, this is awesome. I get to work and make good money doing construction with these guys and also smoke weed all day with them. And it was fun. And then also I, I was playing music as well. You know, I, I had my bass up there and I was, I, I was getting introduced to the world of jazz and blues. You know, I always loved jazz and blues. But now I get an opportunity to play it in the city and make money. You know, it was really cool. I remember, together, I remember being there on Sunday night at the International Jazz Cafe off Hate Street, on Hate Street in Lower Hate in San Francisco. And I'll play with the cat. Wonderful, 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 and immensely talented musician named Top Cat, who's a trumpet player, leader of the band. And we play, man, we play Chameleon by Herbie Hancock. You know, bang, 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 Freddie Hubbard and Coltrane and Miles and all the hits, man, all the good jazz. And I was having the time of my life. And I remember one show, I was making money and a nice meal and got a beer on top of my amp and things are great and I'm playing, playing some killer bass riffs, man. And I just look out and I see people out there having a good time, but I didn't see one person that I recognized. And... It, kind of hit me kind of hard, and that night, as I'm walking back to get on the train, or the BART, as they call it up there, head back to Berkeley, and I'm just bumming, dude, I'm sad, and I don't know, that sadness kind of stemmed from just not knowing anyone, really, or having a good friend up there, just me being alone in my own world, but it was very, uh, it was just very concerning for me because I thought nothing could stop me, man. I was I was doing good. <laughs> my dad was happy for me, you know. I was doing all right, but something inside my head just just wasn't uh, wasn't all right. And um, I remember feeling that sinking feeling that I'm falling. Uh, here it comes. Um, here comes the depression. What do I do? I don't know, so I turned to the only thing I knew. then that was weed. I started smoking more little more, and initially, it kind of helped for a little bit. But then I just thought this crazy thought in my head, like, man, what if this weed just stopped working? What if it just didn't make me happy anymore? And I just was always depressed, like, could that be a possibility? You know, could I just smoke so much we're doesn't even work, and I swear at that very instance, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> in fact, when I remember smoking and feeling worse, like things were pre- regressing, and I was getting worse, and it just got to the point where I couldn't take it anymore and I remember driving back to my hotel. I was doing a job up in uh, Walnut Creek, so I just got a hotel over there. And I remember driving back to my hotel in my little truck. And I was driving like a madman. Driving insane. Going on the wrong side of the road. Driving 100 in a 30 mile per hour zone. And just, you know, crazy. And I'm thinking when I'm behind the wheel. This little five speed. Like, what am I doing? Like, it's almost like I have a death wish. And in some respects, that's exactly what it was. I was depressed again, and I knew, I knew that something had to change, man. I had to make a change, and since I didn't know how to deal with my depression, and I didn't know what worked, I had to come home, man. So uh, that night, I checked out of my hotel, paid all the fees and whatever, and I bounced out, man. It was about ten o'clock at night, and I just remember going to the gas station buying a few five hour energies and just getting on that five south and driving all the way home and I came home and it sucked you know i was I was depressed I was in a full about full blown depression, and my parents graciously welcomed me back into their house you know and um They just let me crash, you know, they knew that I was useless (laughs) at that point, and I was just down, you know, and I remember my dad just being there for me and just saying, hey, son, we love you, you're always welcome here, and, you know, I think it's a good thing for you to stay busy, get to work, you know, and, uh, you know, when I felt better, I was able to go back and work for his company, and, you know, just be a part of the Southern California Lifestyle, and most importantly, be home with my family again. So, um, yeah. You know, that that trip really uh, kind of put things in perspective for me. For one, it made me realize how beautiful the Bay Area is. I love it. Still love it to this day. And miss it. But it um, most importantly let me know and kind of reinforce the fact that I need a support group. And everyone does, essentially. Um, everyone does, really, and I didn't have that, and without that, anyone, even people with a good mental health, anyone could go crazy, anyone could get depressed, they're all alone, I'm not meant to be alone, and I was. So I came home, and uh, eventually I got back to work, and you know, things got better, and uh, I worked on myself, you know, I continued to take meds, and I continued to go to therapy, And uh, continue to just try to get, try to get through life, (laughs) unscathed. So that was a big uh, turning point in my uh, life—the whole San Francisco trip and whatnot. So uh, for the next few years, you know, there'd be a lot of uh, a lot of different women coming in and out of my life, uh, mostly temporary um you know a lot of uh, one night stands and a lot of hooking up nothing too serious um and a lot of that was was kind of my doing um i never really wanted to get too close to anyone for many reasons and one selfishly being that i knew that one day i was just going to kill myself so what's the point you know so, um, I continued to live life. And, uh, you know, luckily I had a job in my, through my parents' company, which paid well. And it was a good job. It was a hard job. I had to get up every morning at 4 a.m. And after taking 300 milligrams of CERCL every night, that was a tough task to do just to get up. But luckily, I lived with my brother. And he drove in the mornings. So I drove at night or on the way home from work and uh we made it we made it work. But um yeah, it was definitely a learning experience for me. So um over the the next few years I would continue to work and um try to balance my thoughts in my head and the medication and everything. But uh it was still difficult. And, um, you know, looking back on it now, um, there were hard times. Definitely, but... But, uh, you know, things uh, things become a little clearer as you get older, especially dealing with the mental illness. So, um, continue to work and do my thing. And uh, I did have episodes... Mostly of depression after that. And, um... It really just kind of got to the point where... I could no longer work. Um, I was violently depressed. And I really kind of gave up on everything in life. Um, even music. And It was it was tough. And, um... I would go off and get me manic. And wind up in the mental hospital. And... Repeat this process over and over. And um, it was really hard. And then eventually... I just stopped working. Probably at the age of... 25. I just stayed at home and collected... Disability. My doctor put me on... Disability. And I was just one of those people. One of those people that I always loathed. Oh, you're collecting disability. And here I am... With essentially an invisible illness... Still an illness and still on disability.